Hello and welcome to the latest Autocar Business Live webinar. I'm Mark Tischel, Autocar's editor, and today we're looking at the future of car manufacturing and the new ways in which cars can be built. Disruptors have infiltrated most areas of the automotive industry and manufacturing is no different. Microfactories are one of the terms of the moment, a system of smaller factories that's being pioneered by the likes of Arrival, among others. Then there are the likes of Ineos, which has taken an existing factory and refitted it for its own needs. Traditional car makers are having to adapt and innovate too, ploughing vast sums of money into their sites as they prepare for electrification. What do these different approaches mean for the ways cars will be built in the future? That's what we'll be looking at. Joining me today are two guests who have huge experience in this area. Welcome first to Peter Wells, Director of the Centre for Automotive Industry Research uh, at Cardiff Business School and a, uh, and a Professor of Business Studies and Sustainability. He was writing about microfactories all the way back in 1998. I'm also delighted we're joined by Eric Torsecki, Director of Operations and Supply Chain for Ineos Automotive. He's responsible for the manufacturing and facility operations at the handback plant, as well as preparations of the plant for production of the upcoming Grenadier. I'm also joined by our own Jim Holder, our business columnist here at Autocar Business. Please don't forget to send in any questions you may have. Uh, I'll do my best to ask as many of them as possible. Uh, you'll follow the prompts on your screen. We're going to try and cover a lot of topics um, on the different approaches to building cars in the future, from microfactories to, to those conversions of large existing sites. So Peter, perhaps uh, we can start with you. We've, we've said the word microfactory there as, as, a, as a way of building cars in the future. What exactly is a microfactory? Well, I think as we originally conceived the idea, a microfactory is actually more than just a place where you manufacture cars. We conceived this, this as microfactory retailing, and that combines the manufacturing operation and the retailing operation, but in a very small scale. So it's more than just a, a factory, it's actually a business strategy and a whole new business model, which allows smaller new entrants to, to penetrate what has traditionally been an industry dominated by economies of scale. And Eric, perhaps you could uh, give us a summary of Ineos's manufacturing strategy and approach. Unmute here, yeah, yeah. Our approach is more of a traditional approach. As you know, we acquired the Hambach plant from uh, uh, from Mercedes, and it is a you know a traditional uh, manufacturing site where, uh, as you may know, uh, Mercedes invested some 470 million uh, euros, and we in, in part of that invested maybe another 50 million for a new body shop, new paint shop, and a modified general assembly. So we have the the more of the traditional approach. And say so what other approaches did you look at as a, as a new entrant into the automotive uh, automotive industry? Did you consider micro factories? Did you did you look at other options as well? No, we did not. Uh, I mean, what we were looking at was was either greenfield or brownfield, and and had gone quite far with the greenfield option when the opportunity came to to acquire the plant from uh, from from Mercedes. But the volume that we're looking at, and if you look at the implication of the supply chain, you know, that there are significant benefits then to, to produce all the cars in, in, in one place. And um, um, Peter, what, what do you think is driving this, this change in some areas of the of the factory business model? Is, is it supply, nature, supply chain issues, Brexit, electrification? What, what's behind all these changes we're seeing? Well, I think everything comes together here. Um, there's been some really interesting developments, important developments in terms of uh, the ability to use digital technologies in the manufacturing space. So that allows uh, both smaller scale and flexibility. So that's been important. Also uh, developments in terms of materials, better use of more lightweight materials, different process technologies. That's really opened up a space where in the past, really everything had to be steel. Um, we, we've moved away from that already, and that opens up many more opportunities for um, kind of more innovative attitudes. Also, you know, bear in mind the market itself is fragmenting in all sorts of ways, and it's creating new spaces. And those spaces, at first, in, are, are unlikely to be particularly big. So the market potential can be tapped by those smaller operations without having to throw everything in an all-or-lose all win or lose bid to try and get a bit of market share. 
I think one of the things we looked at with the micro factories was, you know, what is the expansion route for a business? If you have to go in for a 300,000 unit per annum factory, that means you've got to sell a lot of cars very quickly. And, and for a new brand, you know, Ineos will face this, for a new brand, you've got to convince a lot of customers very quickly. Alternatively, with a more incremental manufacturing strategy, which opens up different geographic spaces bit by bit, you can expand your manufacturing in line with the market. You don't have to put so much in all at once. And interesting enough, you know, you do get economies of scale through cloning the factory operations themselves. So it's a different approach to how you achieve those economies. And it's a different approach to how you grow your market presence. Peter, if I can just dive in there, uh, I'm interested, you, you've referenced scale a lot. You know, we would have looked at INEOS uh, respectfully uh, as a smaller scale manufacturer. What, what sort of size are we talking about here for, for the micro factory to be a viable option? Well, depending on the nature of the market it's serving, I think a micro factory can work at 5,000 units per annum. I mean, we, we, we started this research looking at many of the often British small-scale manufacturers, sports car manufacturers and the like. We went to Ferrari, you know, we went to Lotus, we went to all of these kind of manufacturers to see how they worked at that level. And a lot of the innovations there really relate to how they work with their customers and how they generate customer loyalty. And the, the, the linkage between the factory and their customer base was really important. So in terms of scale, we actually envisage this moving over time. And if you can imagine, you know, without the dealership network, once you've started manufacturing and cars are starting to be put out there, we saw the micro factories also operating as a remanufacturing facility. So as the cars needed to be refreshed and, and returned, the factory itself could move over from just producing new to being more and more involved in remanufacturing and generating in income streams beyond the necessity to sell cars. And that was a key issue here. You know, it's been really interesting, you know, this period we just had of supply, supply constraints. All of a sudden, manufacturers are profitable. Now, <laughs> you've got to think this one through. Now, why is that the case? Well, actually, you know, typically the market suffers from chronic overproduction that the, it, the collective effort of every vehicle manufacturer means there's too many cars coming onto the market, they get discounted, profitability is very low, and depreciation is very high. We wanted to escape that trap whilst also introducing more environmentally sustainable technologies. And we thought the micro factory approach was one way. Um, Peter, why hasn't it taken off then yet? If it's something we've been talking about for the past you know, two decades at various levels, when 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 is it going to have its breakthrough moment? Would you say the microfactory? Well, we see elements of that breakthrough going on all the time. Um, I mean, bear in mind that the the collective idea of microfactory retailing came from the, looking at many different companies, and now what I see is that even some of the biggest companies are adopting elements of this business model. So, to give you a classic example: Volkswagen right now is investing heavily in battery recycling and is talking about retaining ownership of the cars over one, two, three, even four leasing cycles, and then bringing the cars back themselves to be uh, recycled in their own facilities. This circularity of the business model is one, one of the things we proposed in this microfactory approach. So I do see the elements of this are already happening. Obviously, you've got companies like Arrival who finally have got some big money behind them. And that's the key. You still need major investments to break it through into this industry. I'm sure Eric will explain just how deep the pockets need to be to make this kind of entry. What we're proposing is, is so radically different that I think it's hard for investors to be convinced uh, that it's a safe place to put their money. But we will see more and more of it. I think one of the challenges that, that in, in this model, we've seen that in, in, in uh, some, some plants, is that, of course, what you're looking at, uh, you know, the enormous amount of parts that go into the building of the vehicle, right? Uh, I think in, in general assembly, if you're looking at some, some 1,500 parts per vehicle, and maybe if you look at all the different versions you have, you probably have some 2,000 parts going in. And, of course, if you now have a general assembly where you right now have... Uh, maybe 130 stations in a plant with a tack time, uh, you know, of, 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 a, of a few minutes, if even that, 
if you're not going to the micro plan, uh, and, and I've seen this, of course, what you do have now, you, you have longer attack times, which means that you then have staff that also needs to remember many, many more things what to do, which then brings a bit of a challenge that we see specifically when we do, uh, you know, ramp up of vehicles or, or, or building small series. And of course, if you look at companies like, uh, well, you look at even even more extreme being Koenigsegg, where you have a tag time of, of, of several hours, of course, they have been quite successful in this. If we're looking at building, uh, you know, some, some uh, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 vehicles and divide them into micro, micro plants, that I would say would be quite difficult from our point of view. So from, from an Aeneos point of view, uh, it, it, was, it was never, anything that we were we were looking at because we're looking at scaling and of course it's looking at scaling it's easier to do that with one plant with capacity and especially now since we were able to take over a plant where we had uh, you know the investments had been made we have uh, you know ready paint shop we have uh, you know a trained staff to build so from that perspective it was, it was never part of our 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 strategy i can still see that that maybe if you building uh, maybe a larger vehicle like Arrival, uh, that that maybe you can do this. Uh, you know that 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 you know uh, you uh, you have a micro factory and maybe it's easy to scale. But I think for mass-produced vehicles, I think it's 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 quite tough just because of the logistics challenge that you have them to ship parts to several plants over the world rather than doing it to one place. Right? Yeah, so it's a key point, Eric. Yeah, I completely hear what you're saying there. I mean, it's interesting you you, you moved into that brownfield site, and as Tesla did in, in California, of course, um, in order to, to really ramp up their production. Um, but, you know, a, a while back, Hyundai was looking at maybe investing a plant into the UK, and, uh, of course, the region started competing for that uh, possibility. And here in Wales, we had one place that might be suitable <laughs> for a large automotive assembly operation of the type that you're describing just one and and so those greenfield sites are actually really rather precious um and so one interesting element of this whole of the kind of underlying logic of the business model uh with the micro factories is that actually you could move into a much smaller scale facility a pre-build facility an empty kind of brownfield factory site uh, with relatively little uh, requirements in terms of additional new floor space and and that made it attractive and does make it attractive now to uh, uh, governments, local authorities, city authorities trying to attract investment into their localities, bringing jobs, bringing investment. So the totality of, of the logic behind the, the model is partly about the manufacturing operation itself, but equally, you, know, you, you need to convince a whole bunch of people in government and in those kind of local, local communities that this is a good thing bringing those jobs and, and, and the wealth into those communities is a key part of the equation. And then on the other side of it, you know, we, we in, in analyzing the economics of this, what we tried to do was think about, you know, what is the cost of that dealership and distribution system? You know, typically it's adding maybe 30% of the X factory uh, or X works price of the car onto in, into the retail price of the car. And, and that's an expensive business. So we figured, well, if you, even though the investments are carried by a third party, not necessarily by the vehicle manufacturer, they still figure in the total cost of the car as it's delivered to the consumer. If you can take away that large chunk of cost, then you're looking at an interesting different proposition. Now, I don't know what you're doing on this. It'd be interesting to hear, you know, how, how will Ineos approach this market? Are you going for the dealership network route? Are you going to do something more like Tesla? And I, the, that area of cost, I think, is key. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, I think those are two 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 separate areas. What we what we are of course doing is, is we are we are developing what we call uh, customer experience centers. Because you have very specific vehicle, uh, you know, being a, a you know hardcore four by four off road vehicle. So you know to put put uh, you know dealerships in the city to have people to go and look at the vehicles there may not be the best way to do it. So. Uh, you know, you could argue that we would have then the micro factories being our customer experience centers where you actually do, you are able to put, uh, you know, accessories onto the vehicle. So, for example, if you buy a vehicle with a roof rack or you buy it with, uh, with, with some, some, some other options, they would then be fitted at these experience centers. So, you could argue that that's, uh, that, that, that's you know, 
you know that that's part of the the micro factory concept that you are that you are describing right but then if you look at you can also argue that of course micro factories have have existed for a long long time because all around the world you have all of these skd factories where you actually do produce but that's typically to get around importation duties but i think most major manufacturers right now have uh, you know skd factories or as you would refer to them as, as micro factories that that have you know production of a few thousand vehicles per year, but that is a set that's typical to get around uh, importation issues, right? Eric, you've um, mentioned Wales there, Peter, based in Wales. Um, Ineos, of course, was originally going to move into a facility in Wales. I, I believe some manufacturing in Spain as well. Could you perhaps just for any viewers who don't know that story, just recount that story, please, and also perhaps the context of how. How did it allow you to speed up your manufacturing plans by being able to move into a ready-made plant? Has it allowed you to get cars to market quicker? And has it saved you some pretty serious um, investments as well? Yeah, maybe to, to jump into that, it was actually what we did have. We had a, a site planned in, in Portugal. We would have, uh, you know, a, a manufacturing of, of uh, you know, major components, bodies and painted bodies. And then we had a final assembly that was then planned. But of course, this was this was the, the 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 working direction, and of course, this was the working direction until we had the opportunity to buy to buy the Hamburg plant, and uh, the Hamburg plant had already been outfitted by Mercedes, uh, as I said, had invested some 470 million to build large size SUVs. So what we could do, we could actually move into a plant that was uh, you could call it maybe. 70% finished. So we needed to do them just to reconfigure the plant in order now to, to start to build, build the Grenadier. So uh, it was of course a, a, a significant um, uh, advantage to us to move into this. Uh, I, I still believe that we would have gone to market probably with the same. We didn't save that much time by doing this because we still had to reconfigure the plant uh, so, but and, and we actually stopped this when we pretty much were about to start to pour concrete both in both in Portugal and in Wales. Uh, but maybe the biggest advantage to do in to do this was actually to go into a a plant that is an operating plant. And and what many people maybe not know is that we are producing vehicles now, even though we're doing uh, you know. Uh, production, pre-production of, of Grenadiers, uh, I mean, we've built over 25,000 smarts. So we are operate, We are an operating company, we're building vehicles. We're also building components for the uh, Mercedes uh, EQC. So we're making front ends in, in our plant that is then, uh, then distributed to Mercedes plants. So while we're putting the Grenadier into production, we are at the same time running the plant, building, build, building uh, smarts. Have you retained the existing workforce for that, or sort of retrained them for your needs? Yeah, it's it's existing workforce. Yeah, and you if you have to remember too that of course Mercedes had already started to train them to build uh, the EQ, EQB and EQC in the plant. So a large part of that transition had already been been started. Eric, can I just dive in and ask you a quick question? Did it matter which country you were? manufacturing in for INEOS? Did, did you have any preference geographically or and for what reasons? There were no preferences geographically. Uh, what what I started in 2018 and uh, you know I'm for sure not going to disclose but we looked at several locations including other locations in the UK and other locations in, in Europe. We even looked at some areas outside of Europe uh, but but it's effectively just came to where we where we thought that we would be most successful to do this. I think these days with with, with borders, you know, uh, with, within the EU, it, it it doesn't make much of a difference. What's interesting too, I think, with this Hamburg is that is that you know, I mean, technically it's in France, but it's it's really part of the of the of the German automotive cluster. I mean, the plant is French and German speaking. All the suppliers are German. Uh, you know, all of our engineering sits in Germany. So, from our point of view, it's it's uh, it's it's a good place to be from a logistics point of view, and and we, we have the resources and support to to build quality vehicles. Uh, no, just staying with you a second. It, it, 
manufacturing seems to be or setting up factories seems to be a way where new entrants typically fall over is that and we haven't really had that many new mass market manufacturers come in or, or not necessarily mass market but building at scale that aren't attached to a, a, um that, that aren't a, independent companies that aren't a, attached to a traditional oem why do you think so many um manufacturers or wannabe manufacturers fall over um before they reach the stage where they can actually build cars is it because the, the, the investments need to be so big um to just to simply set up a production line i think that you know one of the one of the difficulties or or the curses of the automotive industry is that for more or less a million or two you can build a show car you can show at the geneva auto you know, geneva show and you can give the impression to journalists that you have a vehicle that is more more or less ready to go into production where actually you prep maybe you've done five or ten percent of what's needed to make the vehicle and then of course you're talking about the challenges of putting it into production and and then of course we, we somehow associate that with building plants you know body shops and paint shops and and, and so on but actually, if you look at it, it's probably a bigger effort is the supply chain. Because it's actually to build the supply chain to make sure that you now have uh, suppliers that can supply parts to you. And then you also have to remember it's not only investment in, in the plant itself, it's actually investment in supplier tooling. So it's a huge investment in supplier tooling and finding these suppliers that are then willing to work with you as a startup company. I think that's a lot of the, a lot of the challenges. So even if you look at at, at some of the, the US startups now that have actually gone in and bought existing car plants. You know, we have a couple of examples there uh, that, are, that are struggling. And I think a large part of why they're struggling is, is not that they don't have blue collar workers that can put cars together. I think a lot of the challenge is that they, they have a hard time to get suppliers to, to, to supply uh, quality parts on time for them. Is that financial would you say is that because it just costs so much money and you need really deep pockets to build cars no i think it's just the the the, the organization what are we looking at you're looking at some what 200 suppliers that you have to set up each one of those suppliers has to be p-packed which means that you have to ensure that they now build the parts according to your quality that they meet you know all of the uh, all of the requirements for the automotive industry and if you now have the incumbent uh, tier one suppliers they may be less interested in supplying, I think that's one of the things you saw from Tesla, right? That they've insourced a lot of the things. This was because there wasn't maybe a lot of interest in, in some of the suppliers to work with them. So I think one of the big challenges that I think we have been very successful within the NEOS is to build a very, very strong supplier network. We brought them in very, very early as partners in the development. And that means that we have, you know, uh, reliable suppliers that are able to produce the vehicle as uh, sort of the parts at the same tact as we are producing the vehicle so again i think production is is for sure one of the issues but probably even a bigger issue is is the supply chain and make sure that you you have uh, partners that will be able to supply the parts for the on time i think uh, and especially today now when you have the overall supply chain issue I think if you look at companies like Rivian right now, they have the plant there, but still there are no cars coming out. And I'm, I don't know for sure, but I would assume it's probably more related to them getting parts and that they're not able to, to make the vehicle. Peter, we, we, we've heard Tesla mentioned there and, and so many automotive conversations turn to Tesla at some point, and this is no different. What, ignoring the hype perhaps and the technology, when it comes to manufacturing the cars, what, what does Tesla do differently? And why has Tesla been able to build itself at, at such a large scale? Well, Mark, I think the problem is you can't ignore the hype. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what you see here is uh, a fundamentally a fairly traditional approach to manufacturing. And, uh, you know, they, they're able to draw on existing um, existing skills, existing knowledge, including supply chain management knowledge. They brought in a lot of people from the existing automotive industry to, to do precisely what Eric has identified, because that's where they hit one of their big bottlenecks. So they've been able to draw on that kind of ecosystem of expertise uh, in a way which has been uh, really beneficial. Now, where, where the 
where the differences emerge, of course, is where you're developing new technologies. And, and of course, with, the, with, with INEOS, the, the vehicle itself is not in any sense radical. You know, it's not really introducing any new innovative manufacturing systems or product production or, or product design. A lot of these other early startups have been trying to do that, and it's more difficult. You don't have that ecosystem to draw on. Uh, that The suppliers tend to be more tentative, and it's very easy to get stuck with... Um, with a very with a negative cash flow situation you have to put a lot of money into building a fleet of cars to put into the market and all of a sudden you need to pay your suppliers and this is precisely what happened to think all those years ago they got caught with just not enough money to service the, the business so where tesla has been having an advantage is deep pockets significant investment coming from a wide range of sources but of course initially from the venture capital uh, segments in in california those deep pockets could see the business through what has been a, a long period of non-profits and uh, you know many other smaller businesses just haven't had the resource to go through that kind of period so i think that's been key to the tesla being able to get through its production problems get through its supply chain problems deal with its kind of quality issues and so on and develop its own technologies in those areas where it felt it had to because it didn't have the supply base to step in you know obviously the early relationships with panasonic for example were key to being able to supply the factory with enough battery packs to to produce the vehicles now tesla has a wider range of choices other manufacturers also now are beginning to have a wider range of choices but we can see that with that new technology around electric vehicles we're having the repeat problem there's not enough there's not enough diversity in the supply chain there's not enough depth in the supply chain for for manufacturers to feel comfortable with their current supply structures so a lot of manufacturers have gone down the route of trying to develop their own investments in this area not surprising uh, similarly with motors there's still not enough there um, and similarly some of the other related areas so I, I can see that as we move into these new technologies, the, the sort of issues that Eric's talking about will come to the fore, not just for new entrants, but for any manufacturer trying to build that capability around them. You know, you look at the traditional manufacturers here in, in Europe, the US, even China, as, as they migrate into those new technologies, they're going to hit exactly the same sort of supply chain issues, and that's going to constrain some of their strategies. Um, so in this industry, supply chain is absolutely critical. Uh, the manufacturers sort of watch it all come in and stick a few bits together and watch it go out. Slightly undermining, <laughs> understating what Eric, Eric does in handbag, but in, in essence, most of the value comes from the supply chain. So it's absolutely critical to get that bit right. Uh, Tesla, I think, had the advantage of being able to do that with experience and with an, an, an established ecosystem. And perhaps um, focusing, therefore, on those areas of the supply chain which were weakest and having the resource to do it. And that's what makes for success. So, Peter, are you essentially saying that we should look to the established uh, names to innovate in this area ahead of the startups? You know, it's easy to get distracted by the startups, but it sounds from what you're saying that the expense, the complexity means that the deep breath and, and that gulp moment is more likely to come from one of the established players. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think so. Um, but also bear in mind, there's a whole bunch of other issues around this. Um, there's issues of consumer trust. Um, you know, how far do consumers trust a new brand? Uh, how far are they willing to invest money into a new brand? That, that's gonna be a, an area of concern. And, and I think, you know, when you're, when you're faced with these kind of issues, um, the established manufacturers and the established brands at least have some of that comfort factor. And even, even, dare I say it, Volkswagen, despite the problems they had in the US in 2015, the, the brand was remarkably resilient. You know, consumers didn't run away. They still had that sense that, yes, we can trust Volkswagen as much as we can trust anybody. What I would say also is that governments tend to underwrite some of the risks here. You know, governments seem to be very afraid of letting their manufacturers go, of seeing plants close. And, and so we're not talking about pure economics here. If we were living in a world of pure economics, the automotive industry would be a very different place. Uh, and so the willingness of governments to step in is crucial. Also, bearing in mind, the cost of closing a big manufacturing operation is as high as opening a new one. So, so actually the exit costs in this industry are very high. 
And that means um, there's a lot of resistance to structural change. Having said that, you know, you can, we can already see the signs. There's a lot of manufacturing coming out of China and into Europe now. Some of it uh, under Chinese names, some of it under the names of established manufacturers here in Europe. Um, even Tesla is doing this. So you know, the, the geography of this industry is shifting around us. And to some extent, even in the mainstream is reflecting that shifting geography. Um, you know, the, the issue, I think, for someone like Volkswagen is they can't walk away from Wolfsburg. They can never walk away from Wolfsburg. So they've got to make that work. They have incredible resource. They've got fantastic engineers. They've got huge political clout. All of those kind of factors are really important in enabling that business to bridge from one to the other. If you look closely, what you'll see is that many of the industry now are separating. They're separating their electric business from their kind of legacy business, as it's come to be called. Why are they doing this? Well, because they want to be able to value those parts of the business separately. They need an exit strategy for that legacy business, and they need to be able to focus investment on that new business. And the, the companies that do that successfully are the companies that come through this process. I do expect to see casualties, but only insofar as governments allow that to happen. Eric, the, you said earlier, Ineos's model is, is a traditional one. So didn't, bearing in mind what Peter just said there, does being traditional in your approach actually work in your favour in this industry? And perhaps is there anything you um, looked at from, from Tesla as the last kind of independent car maker to really um, break through at scale? Uh, anything you can learn from them? From us to learn from, from Tesla, I think it's a, I think it's a quite, quite different, different approach. Um, you know, our, our Grenadier that we're building now is, is, is filling a void in the, in the market. It, it, it's an area where everybody's walking away from and we're walking into it. So I think it's, a, a, you know, fundamentally different. I think, uh, you know, Elon Musk is trying to re revolutionize an industry, you know. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to, as I said, deliver a vehicle that is pretty filling a void that, that other manufacturers are living in the market. And Eric, part of your, a big part of your job as well, as, as we heard, is um, managing the supply chain. How is life as a, a supply chain director at the moment? Well, I think that it's actually it it you know being a being a small and new uh, it may, may actually be a bit of an advantage. Uh, we have been able, of course, to to uh, make sure that areas where we know there is a long term risk to make sure that we have taken countermeasures to ensure that we don't run into supply issues in, the, in those areas specifically in the area of electronic components, you know, it's possible to actually go and, 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 and buy those and, 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 and stock them for a while, right? So, um, and uh, in, in general right now, uh, you can see that actually even some of the cost of logistics is actually going down now. So we, we, we're seeing a bit of a turnaround. So I, I hope that we've seen the worst. Uh, you know, it's, there will be an adjustment here. If you look at most car manufacturers now, my wife's trying to buy a car now, and, and I suppose you, you guys seen the same thing too. I mean, if you want anything, you have to wait anything from six months to 12 months, right? And I think that we will see this improve in the, in the, in the coming year. So I think, I think the worst is behind us. That, that would be my assessment. Yeah, just to come back a bit on the, uh, the whole new entrant issue and, and the question of scale. I mean, the, the handbag, operation is really interesting as an example before Ineos turned up of how not to do it in the sense that you know the Mercedes created a new brand they created a very radical new product in a, in a segment that didn't exist uh, they had a new manufacturing system you know with their cruciform layout of the plant uh, they, they they did everything they could to be new and and I think um, yeah, one of the issues they had originally was, of course, as Eric has identified, actually getting suppliers behind the idea, because in, in, in their approach to manufacturing the smart, the idea was that essentially the suppliers would do it uh, and, and Mercedes would watch from the outside. Now, in order for that to happen, Mercedes had to make a lot of promises to suppliers about volume and those volumes weren't met. And, and Mercedes had to uh, offer retribution to those suppliers because the volumes were not met. 
So I think you know it's a good illustration of some of the risks here, and perhaps you know this is something Enios has, has learned. You know that that um, they are, Enios itself, new business, going into a new market segment with a new product, having to orchestrate that supply chain, is facing exactly the same challenges. And I'm curious, actually, uh, Eric, how you how you've managed. You're obviously, you know, you're. A, you're uh, a gently smoking, charming man, and I'm sure that helps. But how do you how do you convince those suppliers uh, that it's going to be okay this time? Well, first of all, you know, uh, you know, I, I for sure cannot speak for 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 Smart and Mercedes what they did, but but you know, this is the Hamburg side. This is of course not the Smart the Smart plant. Because the Smart plant still there. We're producing. This is a completely new plant. It's a new body shop, brand new paint shop and you know highly modified the uh, general assembly so these are two completely separate areas of the business secondly i don't think that we're moving into a new segment in the market we're, we're actually we're actually taking over a segment in the market that was quite successfully served by other suppliers for many years so as they are moving out of the market we're moving into it so it's not really creation of a new market right but as i said the key here is to actually go in and as you know, one, as one example, for example, our engine suppliers, BMW, we have, you know, 100% support from them. We look at our access coming from, from Carraro. Again here, you know, we're working with Bosch for all of our electronics and so on. Uh, we're working with Magna for the engineering support of the vehicle. So we've been able to create these, call it the pillars around, around the support of creation of the vehicle. And when you have those pillars in place, then of course it's much, much easier to attract the other suppliers, because when they see that that uh, you know these these uh, you know solid tier one suppliers are on board, then of course they're less hesitant. So they then also come on board. So I think that's the way you have to build it. So you have to find the real core parts that you need, you know, and then make sure that you establish those. So I think from from our point of view, we have a very, very strong supply supplier base. And, 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 and they, you know, I'm confident that I will be able to supply cars uh, as per as per the demand that we see. Peter, uh, just to come in on that, we've heard an awful lot uh, about supplier issues, uh, perhaps not on the scale Ineos has enjoyed, but on much larger scale where manufacturers have traditionally funneled their purchasing through single suppliers, squeezed them on price, you know, we're hearing now of relations breaking down uh, with some suppliers and some manufacturers. How much does that feed into this idea of, of using mega factories versus micro factories? Uh, and, and how will they have to redefine those supplier relationships in the future if they want to keep the mega factories open? Yeah, it's a good question, Jim. There are, there's a bunch of issues in here. I think um, one of the important ones is that yes, you can achieve economies of scale through uh, you know a platform-based approach to product design, shared componentry, and so on. But then you also get uh, those occasions, and they seem to be all too frequent, where a key component, which you've used across several vehicles across your product range, fails, and then you've got to recall them all because of the same problem. Uh, and we see this increasingly going on at the moment, and, and I think that's actually been one of the concerns for vehicle manufacturers has been to to appreciate that to some extent you need to mitigate against that kind of risk because it's a reputational damage as well as a financial cost, and and so the the whole kind of mega factory approach, which depends upon that those very sort of tight economies of scale within one, one or two suppliers is always going to be vulnerable. Similarly with the entire supply chain itself, you know, we've seen that with the war in Ukraine. That, that for some key areas of supply, there's only one or two suppliers and those linkages back into, into European factories have been broken. So um, this question of uh, supply resilience and vulnerability has become certainly more important in recent times. And that too will, will help drive uh, both more localized sourcing and more diverse sourcing. So if that diversity exists, and this is of course, one of the key problems, um, there's only a limited number of players who can step up to those automotive volumes, automotive standards and, and the pressures on price that are currently exist. And so it's a relatively small pool. I do see that also the 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 question of, of 
where you put your plant and how big it is and how, what markets it serves is, isn't reducible to the question of investment purely in, in, in financial terms. Again, there's a lot of politics in this. And um, what we see here is, I think, a, a, an understanding that markets want to feel there's more there's more going on there than just spending money buying a car. In other words, that the, the community within which you live and work also benefits from this, um, whether that be at a national level or, or at a more local level. So the, there's, a there's always going to be a tension there between those economies of scale and the, the, the need to, to, to meet those kind of requirements. And the same thing happens in the supply chain. You can single tool an item or you can double tool it or triple tool it. And... And yes, those costs will increase, but it might give you that level of flexibility that you want. And bear in mind that you know, the industry is always fight, fighting a tension between the desire for scale and the, the desire for customization. Well, I thought it was interesting, Eric mentioned this idea that in, in the experience centers for Enos, that customers will be able to think about, you know, using other smaller items, uh, differentiating items to make their vehicles more personalized. This is, you know, this is part of where the market has gone over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, people don't understand, you know, when, when Ford was originally produced the Model T, you know, a long, long time ago, admittedly, but there were 5,000 items in the Sears catalogue that people could buy to put on that Ford Model T. I can't even think of 5,000 things I'd want to put on a car, but apparently this is true. So... This desire for individualization, and perhaps even below that, a desire for more functional differentiation isn't going to go away. And so that, that kind of tends to militate against the, this thrust for kind of monoculture of economies of scale. What is interesting is a business like Arrival with their micro factory proposing to serve Uber in London. Oh, this is a brilliant idea because they will want a, essentially a standardized product in a relatively small scale. And maybe if they supply it successfully into London, they could do it in Paris or Geneva or wherever else Uber happens to be operating. And that is a way of tying together both the market and the production system in a way that you know, reduces the, the totality of the cost. I mean, one of the things that's always quietly bugged me is, you know, if you look at Eric and his manufacturing system, it'll be fantastic. You know, they'll be doing their tap time of a minute or minute and a half, whatever it might be. The production system accelerates the product all the way through to the, to the, to the paint and the finish and all the rest of it. And then what? Well, then it goes into the distribution system and the whole thing just slows up again. Uh, they sit around in, in a nice little yard next to his exhibition center, you know, his experience centers. Customers come along and kick his tires. You know, the, the whole thing slows up. And that's crazy. You've added all that value and then it hits the sand. It's one of the key problems in the automotive industry. So I think maybe, you know, no. the micro factories can get around it. Go on, Eric, tell me. Yeah, I don't know. From a, a, a couple of things here to, to reflect on. I think, first of all, when we're looking now at some of the recalls that we've seen, uh, and, and we have to remember now that in, you know, before when someone was coming up with a new vehicle, Mercedes or BMW or, or, or Ford or whoever, right? They actually had, so they had an old Escort and coming out now with a new Escort. If that new Escort was delayed by three or six months or even a year, it was not a big deal because they still had the old Escort to sell, right? What you're looking at right now is you have looking at the automotive industry that had to transition from combustion engines to electrical vehicles. And that means that they also have to be able to have a balance now, the number of electrical vehicles that they sell you know, because of their, their CO2 footprint, which means that they now have to make sure that they get these vehicles out as quickly as possible. Because these vehicles are not replacing vehicles that they have, uh, they're actually addition to the vehicles that they have, right? So if they now wait for a year to release an electric vehicle, that means that they have a, a year of lost CO2 benefits. So that means that a lot of these new vehicles are actually coming out, but I think that what you will find as we move into the second generation or the third generation of EVs, you will go back to the same, same as you had before. So I think a lot of these recalls now, the recalls are not because of, you know, uh, uh, there's something wrong with the brakes or something wrong with the steering. It's typically something is wrong with the, with the, with the drivetrain or there's something wrong with the, specifically with the, with the uh, uh, e, e right? So the electronic system. 
And then if in the worst case scenario, I think that's what happened with Ford now, they actually have to go in and change an ICU. So they actually have to make it hardware change. But that is all related to probably bringing, bringing vehicles to market faster than they would have done before because they have this race to get to market. Maybe not so much to beat the competition to make sure that they sell enough vehicle to, to have the, the right CO2 balance for the, for the company. So then uh, and another thing is that, you know, there's a lot of companies, including us, uh, including us, I mean, we do not build to stock. Of course, there's an issue that we have to, of course, ship vehicles around the world, but they're not going to end up on any parking lot and someone's going to come and kick the tires. Every vehicle for the, for, for, for the coming years here will be, have been sold long before we manufacture them. So, so I don't, uh, you know, it's not going to be to, to, to produce vehicles here for, for parking lots. We have plenty of, plenty of questions coming in. Uh, thank you for sending those in. One from James McGeechee uh, from the Zumo Partnership. Given that governments around the world now have a focus on the climate crisis, does this not force the need for manufacturing locally in each country, as this has the lowest carbon footprint? This, plus a desire to secure a degree of security against global events, i.e. Ukraine, almost mandates micro factories, doesn't it? Peter, do you want to take that one? Well, I admire, the, admire some opti optimism there. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when we look at the total footprint of the car, you know, it's life cycle, carbon emissions footprint. You know, typically in, in a traditional car, you're looking at the kind of 80-20 rule or 85-15 rule. In other words, 80% of the total emissions are in use, not in the manufacturing. So for traditional cars, the, the focus really has to be on that in-use phase. Uh, yes, you want to drive down carbon emissions in manufacturing, but you know, the, the cost of supply chain inwards and logistics outwards from a car plant in terms of energy is relatively small in the total life cycle of the car. However, it is somewhat different with electric. You know, the production of the, the battery system so far is heavily energy intensive. This is why you know, Tesla has their solar farm in, in, in the Nevada desert. This is why Northvolt are putting factories up in, in Norway where they've got hydro, hydro power. So, you know, I, I do see that being different. When, when BMW went down the route of putting carbon fiber panels on the i3, one of the things they really looked at was that carbon fiber supply chain and where they could you know, reduce the carbon emissions on that car. Uh, because again, manufacturing fiber for carbon fiber composites is a very energy intensive business. So they also have a hydropower station uh, factory that they use in the US. It shows you that the you know, manufacturers are interested in understanding this because as, as we go to electric, the in-use phase of carbon emissions will be much lower. And that means that if nothing else changes, the manufacturing and, and the post-manufacturing, uh, post-use stages of the car will become more important and have a higher focus. I think that means in turn that we will have to look at you know, those manufacturer, manufacturing processes much more closely. Uh, things like the traditional paint shop, they take a lot of energy. Materials such as steel and aluminium take a lot of energy. How are we going to make that balance between the in-use and the manufacturing system? Not clear, but it does, it does suggest to me that um, we need to think very carefully about the, the energy cost of manufacturing as we make this transition towards alternative technologies, uh, not just battery electric, but also, of course, hydrogen fuel cells. I think what you're saying there is 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 is, is correct, you know. And, and you know, we you, you talk about real CO2 reduction, and you talk about greenwashing, right? And, and you know, greenwashing is actually to to you know just use something that is the same amount of energy as before. You just have clean energy. And I think that what 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 we will be looking at, and and you know, that's one thing that we have in in Hamburg, for example, we have a very advanced energy monitoring system, making sure that we you know we regulate temperature because actually. Uh, you'd be surprised, but in the car plant, a uh, very, very large part of the energy that is used is actually to heat buildings. You, you would assume that the big energy would be, uh, you know, to, do, to run body shops and, and paint shops, but it's not. And if you look at now the suppliers of new paint shops, they are significantly more energy efficient than they were before. You're probably looking at some 50 to 70% reduction in energy use if you go from a paint shop that was made 20 years ago to where it is today, you know. Because everybody's looking at that, so that's a that, that that's a good point. I think also uh, you're also looking now at, at actually. Uh, I think there's a first steel making now CO2 
neutral steel steel is coming out now so you, we will see a lot of this so it's not only a reduction of co2 footprint but as you say too it's also a reduction of energy use overall because that is a second hand actually also then reduces the the, the, the co2 use absolutely eric you any else announced um plans to to build electric cars in the future a couple of weeks ago will that change your manufacturing approach when you start building electric vehicles yeah, from a technical point of view, uh, you know, uh, not not really. Uh, I mean, go really deep technically here. I mean, there, there are changes in paint shops. The good thing is the paint shop that we have is actually is actually made to paint electrical vehicles. The fact is that electrical vehicles have so much more of their mass sitting at the bottom plate, right? So so uh, when when you then need the ovens for a paint shop electrical vehicle needs to be different than from a from a conventional vehicle actually most people don't know that so from that point of view we actually do have our new paint shop now was designed already from the start to be able to 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 paint uh, uh, you know vehicles where you have a lot of mass sitting in the rocker panels right because that's where the battery is going to support the battery so that's done if you look at then the marriage you have a different marriage when you do a a uh, a, a uh, electrical vehicle so instead of marrying the drivetrain you now marry the battery right and then of course the other thing that we that we also have now we have uh, looking at that you know where where do you produce now because you typically you're taking battery modules and you make battery packs and that's the other aspect you you have to figure out do you do you do you make your own battery packs or do you have or do you have an outsourced those are the those are the main aspects but otherwise, you know, there's still a steering wheel, there's still four doors, there's still, uh, you know, seats, there's still a trunk. I mean, still the more in common between an, an, an EV and an ICE vehicle than things that are not in common, right? Yeah, this is a good point, Eric. And um, it was interesting about the paint shop. I mean, I didn't know that myself. So there we go. I, I've learned something here, which is good. Devil's um, in the details. But- yeah, but then I'm, I'm I'm also expecting more diversity in, in the in the uh, end user automotive market. And I was interested to read about the Aptera this morning, sort of back from the dead, um, claiming to have what was it twenty five thousand people signed up to buy that three wheeled solar powered vehicle. Um, okay, you know, so maybe that's a is a, a a footnote in automotive history, but. I think we will see more fragmentation of the market and, and maybe that changes around the electric vehicle piece. But one thing I'd be interested to pursue a bit further is this question of um, recycling, because uh, that, that's the other side of this story of the transition towards electric vehicles. Uh, so that the manufacturing operation itself is, is obviously key, but w- what are we going to do with all of these batteries when they're finished? And, and I did mention earlier on that uh, Volkswagen looking at, you know, they've already got a pilot facility running uh, to dismantle those battery packs. And that suggests to me that you know, they, they see value in this. Um, and, and, and obviously that they want to co-locate as far as they can with the battery manufacturing operation because of the, they'll be feeding those materials back into the operation. Now, this to me would be a first because so far when you recycle a car, it doesn't tend to go back into a car. <laughs> it goes into other things. And I'm curious to know, you know, whether Ineos is thinking about that. Um, my feeling is that the, the micro factory approach, you know, we haven't thought about that. Uh, obviously 20 years ago, we, that wasn't a consideration really, but it must be a consideration in the future because those materials are really valuable. As you said, it's really heavy. We've, we have, there's a few hundred kilos of, of very valuable materials rolling around in that car, even at the end of its life. And so uh, what's going to happen to that? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at this, I've been working with, uh, you know, with, with the electric vehicles for the last 10 years. You, you, you were actually you were actually talking about Think. I was actually manufacturing the Think before they went bankrupt. So uh, that, 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 that's how far back I go. With yeah, the, well, I went around the plant, so I should have probably the, seen you there. <laughs> to, the zebra, to the Zebra batteries. Uh, so, so already now, and I think that's been talking about this for at least the last five, if not 10 years, is so for the second life for batteries. So what you do, you take the batteries out of the car and you put them into containers and use them for, for energy storage. Uh, but, but, but coming back to this too, uh, you know, you're looking at the Grenadier one that we're making now is, is of course a, a, an ICE vehicle, but it's also a vehicle that we have built now that it should be able to, to last for 30, 40, 50 years. 
So that's another way of doing it. You know, if you look at the way we have designed the vehicle is that this is not something that someone's going to drive for five years and then scrap it. The intent here is this one is going to continue to, to drive for, for, for many, many years. And, and that's, you know, with a, with a solid ladder frame, very good body and so on and so forth. This is the way it's designed. So it's not only a matter of, of maybe upgrading, also making sure that you have vehicles that, that last longer. I think that's that's one way. So people uh, maybe pollute a little bit more with a nice engine, but there's for sure areas in the world where you can't work with with with, with EVs. So that it's that aspect too. You can actually be environmental just by the way you design your products and making sure that they are they are used for for for, for many many years. Right. Another another question uh, we've had come in from Paul Markwick uh, from PVM Associates. Peter, this one's for you. With your suggestion of a microfactory also being a direct sales facility, are you suggesting that no dealer network is necessary? How do after sales work? Yeah, well, I think the idea is and was, um, yes, no dealerships necess necessary fundamentally. I mean, um, I might, for a lot of uh, servicing nowadays, it's possible to call somebody in and they come and do it in your drive. Um, and, and it's surprising what can be done in that way. Uh, alternatively, with a mobile servicing unit, traveling to, to a desired location, perhaps a, a thinner network purely dedicated to um, maintenance and uh, ongoing repairs and so forth. Um, but without those palaces, that the automotive industry appears to be so keen on. Uh, well, you can't help thinking, I'm paying for this overhead as soon as you walk in. Um, and I think consumers, do, do they need dealerships? It was always said to be the, the, the thing that, that consumers liked least. I mean, it even ranked below going to the dentist. This, this tells you something quite profound about the retail experience. And so uh, escaping from that, finding alternative to that, uh, it's increasingly common. More and more people buying cars via the internet, selling cars via the internet, servicing their cars through contacts on the internet. It's 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 the way things are going. It's the way things will continue to go. And of course, with with battery electric cars, uh, you don't have quite the same kind of servicing and maintenance schedule that you would get with a typical petrol or diesel car, uh, and that opens up more possibilities as well. So yes, I think we can we can largely do away with the dealerships. Uh, and you know, if you're selling five thousand cars a year from one point, actually, big dealerships would expect to sell that many. Uh, and so uh, you're you're effectively you're you're in in any case replacing what you would have put there anyway. But you've got a factory instead. Um, just to finish off, uh, crystal ball time. I'll give you give you thirty seconds each. Um, What's the future of manufacturing then looking like in, in 20 years? Will it be very different to today, similar today, or some of the ideas and themes we've discussed um, come to fruition? Eric, perhaps you first. Yeah, it's, uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, if you go back, you both go back, I actually look back, look at 2010, I believe that's when, that's when uh, the Model T started manufacturing, right? And, and of course, what they did, they they did the, they kind of revolutionized how we build vehicles. And if you look at how we're building vehicles today compared to what they did with Model T, I suppose it's more labor intensive, but but it's the same. Um, you know, as long as as, as the vehicles will have, um, you know, some kind of uh, doors and closures, right? And as long as there will be seats in them, and as long as there will be a body, uh, you know, we will have to figure out some way to to mass produce these. Maybe there's new materials. Maybe there's a way we can do reduce tax time to, to use carbon fiber or, or, or whatnot. So maybe that's that's a difference from the body. Maybe we have pre-painted panels. We get away from the from the uh, uh, paint shop. It's possible. And the other, of course, uh, in terms of general assembly, still I think that will still continue to be somewhat of a labor-intensive. Uh, activity, you know, so maybe revolution in, in the body shop by using different materials, maybe getting away from the paint shop and but, but still some somehow we have to be able to to assemble the vehicles. Then again, in do we know really will people own cars or is this just use? I mean, is it transportation you're buying rather than the vehicle? I would say that you go that that way. And if that's the case, then um, you know, you, you, you probably change everything. And as we said, maybe they are 
like airplanes today that that you have you have uh, you know an airplane and and it's flying for 50 years and through that time you go three different cockpits and and four different uh, engines you know that maybe that's what we're going through right but from a manufacturing point of view ga will probably stay the same but more the same than than body shop and and, and a paint shop that would be my prediction so peter might have to be a, a quick yes no micro factories and in, in in 20 years will they become a, become the norm yes uh, future of the industry is digital largely chinese and much smaller excellent on that note thank you very much uh, peter and eric for joining us today and thank you all for watching uh, we'll be back probably after the summer break for the next autocar business live We'll see you then. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.